slip it in. Welcome back, everybody, to episode number eight of the Big Players Only Podcast, a partner of the Listen Frederick Podcast Network. Make sure to check us and other amazing content creators out at listenfrederick.com. We have a great show for you today, recapping a star-studded week at the WGC Dell Technologies match play as Scotty, big player, faithful, Scheffler ascends to world number one, getting his third victory of the season and marking the fourth correct big player pick on the year. Four for seven with plus odds, not too shabby. We'll jump into the Valero Texas Open coming up this week, the third oldest tournament hosted by the PGA Tour. Lots of deep history this week in San Antonio, Texas. This is a big week in the women's game. Two awesome tournaments. The first, the newly renamed Chevron Championship at Mission Hills Country Club, the LPGA's first major of the year. Will we see world number two, Nelly Korda, this week? Coming off of a scary blood clot diagnosis just a few weeks ago, can Jin Young Ko continue her dominance and her streak of 31 consecutive rounds under par? The second big women's event this week is the Augusta National Women's Amateur, where the best female amateurs in the world get to test their luck at the Augusta National Golf Course. An amazing gesture in the game of golf, and one that was long overdue when it was announced in 2018. To close out the episode, we'll get all the big players' takes on who their favorite female golfer is. Should be a lot of fun, and some might surprise you. Hey, if you haven't yet, head on over to Instagram and follow us at BigPlayersOnlyPod. Our story is always up to date with breaking news in the world of golf, and our posts are really ramping up as we get into the heart of this PGA Tour season. Thanks for being here, and let's have a great episode. All right, quite a week here. We're recapping at the WGC Dell Technologies match play. Big player faithful, Scotty Scheffler taking home the title, beating Kevin Kisner four and three. The Bulldog himself and a formidable match play opponent. He made, uh, Scotty made Kevin look like nothing. Kisner did not win a single hole on Sunday afternoon. Scotty kept the pressure on from start to finish. Scotty's now won three of his last five tournaments that he's played in and is now ascended to world number one as long as well, along with uh, FedEx number one. So quite a year for Scotty. We've had him three times. We've won three times. And this week's winner is Tully. Tully, what do you have to say? I'm, I'm just really excited to uh, kind of get out of the, the basement of the uh, the group in terms of our gambling. And, you know, Scotty, you know, sloppy thirds, he got me there. I, it was really fucking exciting. Yeah, way to, got you way there. to be original. Way to be original. I mean, it works. Yeah, we got to put an asterisk by this one. Like, it's really easy to just jump on the bandwagon every week. You're eventually going to hit one. Did you hit one yet? I'm trying to be original. I haven't just gone with Scotty. You know, maybe I'll do that next week for the Masters. I think Colin's we'll the original Scotty, and then I had Sam Burns. And the other Scotty winners are definitely, like, in the second tier right now, but still still winners. If it works, it works, and that's what matters. Our listeners, if they're betting with us, they're up, like, four grand right now. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But, you know, he... With this win, we already kind of mentioned there, jumping to world number one, it was the fastest anyone's ever gone after getting their first win, jumping to world number one, even faster than Tiger in a whopping 42 days. You know, winning three of his last five tournaments is ridiculous and, you know, clearly playing the best golf on tour right now. My question is, you know, world number one, yes, but is Scotty the best golfer in the world? And if it's not Scotty, who do we think it is? It's hard to say anything but him right now. I mean, he's got those three wins in the last couple months, 
and it's three very different formats. I mean, he did it in the desert. He did it a very tough course down at Bay Hill, and then, of course, this week in match play, just shutting the, the door completely on anybody going against him. He's definitely playing the best. He doesn't have any holes in the game. I mean, he's he's not elite at anything, I wouldn't say, but he is so great every aspect of the game. It's it's going to be hard to pick anybody over him going forward. Yeah, I think the one thing I'm seeing in Scotty is that you're right. He doesn't do anything extremely well. He is very long off the tee, though, um, and his short game is just world-class right now. But the one thing I'm noticing from him is, like, he likes to play a fade, and you just he, he's not double-crossing himself ever. I haven't seen a, I didn't see a single shot from him over the weekend where he was aiming left, and that ball moved even an inch left. It might have gone a little straight at times, but it never drew. And that's something that if, if when he plays well week to week, he can always count on that fade. Yeah, I think it's kind of hard to argue for anyone else at this point. I mean, Scotty's won three times now. The one thing about that is it's early in the season. I mean, we even have played one major yet. So we'll see later this summer if we're still singing Scotty's tune here, but I'm not sure. So I guess the follow-up question of that is, you know, he's, we're saying he's clearly, you know, the best right now. And then, you know, he's won three times, outpacing everyone by far for the season. What does he have to do to win PJ Tour Player of the Year? Or is he kind of almost locked that up there? Does he have to get a major or two kind of in this run? Yeah, I think we have four majors left. That's really going to shape that race there. But it'll be interesting to see how he kind of handles this new pressure going forward. I mean, carrying the the title of world number one means every tournament you go to, you're the favorite. Everybody's gunning for you. You're going to get the most time with the press. You're going to be fielding a lot of questions. So it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. Does anybody know how long Rom held the number one spot? Because I think we, we got spoiled when we saw Tiger with obviously his record long streak. But it's like, are we in the at the point where we're going to see guys kind of cycling through that number one spot? And yeah, Scotty's hot right now, but are we going to see another guy go on the same type of run that he's on and not really see someone dominate like Tiger did? Yeah, I think Rom maybe had it for around a year or so. Sometime last year, got it maybe even before the U.S. Open win. But, you know, I'm glad you bring up Tiger there because there is some Tiger news coming out this week. You know, we had some uh, creepers in the bushes uh, down at Medalist, seeing him walk in, playing a full round there, right up, leading up to the Masters. And then today, Tuesday, if we were listening yesterday, I guess, for all our many listeners, you know, he has flown up to Augusta, playing around with Justin Thomas and Tyler's favorite golfer, Charlie Woods. So, I mean, we got a lot of Tiger news there. You know, he still has not withdrawn. What do we think? Do we think we're going to see Tiger uh, next week at Augusta? Yeah, no doubt. I think I think it just broke that he made it through all 18 holes, played smooth. So he wouldn't have come up here if he didn't think it were, there was a high chance of him playing. I think this tournament means more to him than any other, and I don't really think it's even close. So I definitely think he's really gunning to play this week. Just the fact that he's there kind of trying it out and, and seeing what he can do, I think that's a really good sign. And I don't think he's going to play unless he thinks he can win. So, Yeah, I think year in and year out at Augusta, too, like – it's, it's it's experience that counts, and so Tiger, you know, can make the cut. I think if he's if he's playing solid, but then yeah, come down. You know, the, the score to Gust always finishes somewhere in the low double digits. So if Tiger can get a little hot on the weekend, certainly his chance. Yeah, and you definitely saw in 2019, it was his experience that won him that too. Like I mean, he, everyone else going in the water on what was it, 16, 17, something like that, and just him just knowing exactly how to play that hole right in the middle. I think the, the experience is definitely going to come in big and. I mean, let's be realistic. Maybe he's not going to win, but it'll be exciting just to have him there. Let's not forget the last time he teed it up on quote-unquote competitive golf, him and Charlie almost won the PNC. And he lost to John Daly and John Daly Jr. Little John, man. 
What, a, what an athlete. I guess in other golfer news this week, Tyler, what are your thoughts on Bryson this past week? Yeah, that's the guy I was most excited to see last week. Disappointing for me that he couldn't even make it out of pool play. You see a guy like Dick Bland making it out of pool play over Bryson DeChambeau, which is just absolutely astonishing to me. Um, so the question I'm now asking is, will he actually be ready for the Masters? He is playing this week at the Valero, but I just, I'm just, it's hard for me to even say he's going to make the cut at the Masters, just because if you can't beat Dick Bland and the other two guys in this group, Old Man Lee, respect on Dick's name, Richard, Big, <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to be hard for me to see Bryson doing well. So it's. You know he moves the needle. We, I said the same thing last week, and I'm doing everything that anyone that's talking golf, when they see Bryson, they have to talk about him. But I just don't know if we're going to see him at the Masters do well this year. Was it was it last year that Bryson talked a lot of shit leading up to the Masters and how it was like a it was a par of 70? What was it? Par 67. Par 67. Yeah, the par fives he, and the short par four. Didn't he miss the cut? He didn't miss the cut, but he, since, since that, he's was, like tied 34th and yeah, tied he wasn't 46. Even, he wasn't even contention, right? Long. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's not... It had, there's too much it feels like you know there's so many hills slopes all that kind of thing there where it's yeah you hit straight and then he just bounces and rolls into some ridiculous spot all that being said i'm gonna spoil my pick here i'm gonna zig when everyone's zagging and i'm picking bryson this week to win the valero so we'll talk about that a little bit later but uh you know i think i think part of it is like guys uh these guys are super competitive right especially i bet bryson in his head believes he's the best golfer in the world right so he wants to get out there and someone like scotty taking the mantle um and bryson is a top five most talented golfer in the world probably and he wants to get out there and prove something and i think i think uh you know these guys are hungry for it like you were saying it's competitive there's world number ones there's probably five golfers eight golfers out there that want to vie for the world number one and um i don't i think we're going to hear from bryson this year in the next couple weeks yeah i mean it's definitely interesting because you know he was adamantly like saying i don't know if he was just kind of trying to cover his own tracks or not but he was saying that he was more like oh i'm 75 percent. i'm not full go at this tournament i'm not trying to really like unleash it whatever so like maybe it's just the kind of he's trying to get back in the whole swing of things as much as you know he does his drills and posts them all over the internet and all that kind of stuff but you know tournament play is obviously a lot different than that simulator so maybe you know he, maybe you're right maybe it is going to be a situation where zag cut, not, zig. not quite a zig or a zag let's not zig or zag look bryson's not winning the masters but eh, uh, but you know it might be a kind of situation where he's like all right i'm testing it out now he's gonna try hit a little farther uh next week and then kind of hoping to be full go at augusta yeah i think last week and especially this week too he's still just going to be trying to shake some rust off and get ready for augusta i think it was a lot to expect him to do well in the in the group stages, not playing for two months, and we saw that with him driving it all over the place. Played very poorly. I think he putted pretty well, actually, ironically enough. But I think he might have been humbled a little bit at Augusta. So maybe this time out, he'll be uh, he'll be playing it a little smarter instead of just trying to overpower the golf course. Yeah, I like the idea of of Bryson without all the controversy or, or attention coming in a little bit. I mean, I think I think the fact that he's taking some time off is going to do do well for him, um, especially heading into the Masters. We'll see. Yeah, I think Dub, it's a great point. Bryson really, I think he was a maybe top five in putting this week in group play. So it's something that Bryson, you know, although it doesn't get talked about a lot, he is a pretty good putter, but he, his putting really hasn't, you know, he hasn't lost any of that because when he was hurt, I'm sure he was putting because he couldn't swing hard. And I think his short game is there, so. I wouldn't be surprised if he makes a run. Um, I think that Bryson's just like his his iron play is not quite there that we all know. And if our listeners don't know that Bryson plays single length irons. So like all of his irons are the same length as his seven irons. So when he's got a pitching wedge in his hand, he's got an extra two inches. Uh, and then as the long, as clubs get longer, the more inaccurate you get. So I think for Bryson, uh, iron play has got to be number one. 
based on last week and then match play, talking about power versus short game or iron play, uh, Colin's got a great question here. And what makes a great match play golfer? Yeah, so we kind of saw a ton of different styles this past weekend at Austin Country Club. Uh, you saw DJ doing well. He's obviously got the power, but then you also saw Kisner in the final against Scotty. I mean, he he kind of relies on his short game to get him through. So I kind of wanted to pose a question here. What makes a great match play golfer? I mean, uh, when we play in our matches here, you've obviously got Ben Power hitting at 330 and chipping on every par four versus a short game. I don't know, me, Ken, probably all of us except for Dub. Uh, just kind of trying to put it out there Dumb in the short fairway. Game is trash. <laughs> but I think what it comes down to is just not giving away holes. I mean, a lot of these post round interviews I saw when they were asking why they went out there and won, they were saying the other player just gave away a couple holes. I mean, I think when you find yourself out of position, the best thing to do in match play is to just put it in the middle of the green and try to two putt. And I think that's what we saw Scotty do all weekend. I definitely think it's the short game that is you know, the most important factor here because, because of that ability, and you've said it before, you think your putter is the most important club in the bag. You know, the ability to just roll in a long putt or, you know, stick it close out of the, the bunker. And you know, we saw Kisner just jar it when he was, you know, down big against Adam Scott out of the sand. That's kind of big momentum shift. It, it's that ability to just kind of silence him. You know, Kisner came out saying, oh, my goal is to just be annoying when I'm on the course. And I think what he meant by that is less I'm just annoying to you, like jingling change in my pocket, all that kind of crap, but more like I'm just going to make impossible parts, like things you just wouldn't expect to happen. So I think that's definitely what, you know, is the, the bigger key rather than just being able to hit the ball mile. Yeah, it was just relentless from Scotty. I think the formula was pretty simple. Get an early lead and then just ball strike his opponent to death. I mean, yeah, he's got a great short game, but it seemed like he hit basically every green over the weekend. He never really gave these guys an opportunity to win a hole with a par, so it really put the pressure on these guys to really have to try and stick it close at a golf course that it's really tough to try and do that consistently. So, But the one time he did almost let the door open was when he tried to go for it on 13 versus DJ. Mm-hmm. And like the announcers were all over it, but he went, he took his driver out and went right in the water and the DJ won, what, three or four holes in a row. And he almost, that was like his one big mistake of the day. And it kind of proved like Colin's point that if you're taking chances out there, you might actually slip up and kind of. Uh, sacrifice the whole match. I think that whole such an anomaly to me because the green, like the front edge of the green was only like something in the mid 280s. And I know most of these guys, I feel like they can carry it, it was windy well, over, well over 300. But it's actually ironic. It was like actually downwind, they almost struggled more because when you play downwind, your ball will tend to knuckle and like dip. And it's hard for them to, to aim for the sky and then also eliminate that big left miss. Um, but then getting back to the point, I think uh, when you're talking about match play, I think I've noticed this. So we just play in like a casual Thursday league. Uh, but every year we go to the end of the year, we have match play. And uh, like I'm, I'm the lowest handicap in the league, but I'll go up against what guys. A subtle flex. Ben. Well, I'll go up against guys that are like, you know, giving, I'm giving them 12 strokes on nine. And I think that they're obviously a little intimidated to play against me because I'm just like a scratch golfer. And for them, that thinks they, they just think they're going to get beat to death. But with 12 strokes, they have a really good chance. But the one thing I've noticed is like, if I'm not playing consistent, it feels like the door feels open for them. So the more fairways they hit, the more greens, the more relentless you can be, kind of like how Kevin Kisner plays, the less of a chance your opponent feels like they have to win a hole, like a random hole, right? Just like, so I guess if you think about it, right, probably by like hole 12 on an 18 hole uh, match play match, you probably have like momentum starting to lean one way. So it's, you don't really look at it like an 18 hole match. You almost look at it like a front nine match. And that's when you're trying to make your move. So being consistent, but, uh, 
one thing Scotty did this really well this week was he just played super aggressive through the first six holes and his short game saved him. So short game is very important. Uh, but for him, he needed to be able to knock down pins and that's what he did in the first few holes. I think having names with double letters in them is also pretty key, isn't it, Colin? You got like Scotty Scheffler with two T's, you and I double L's just winning <laughs> winning match Next. play. Move on. Yeah. Uh, so for our listeners out there, Tully and I have been playing some golf together. I think we're the most formidable duo now in the BPO. I mean, I think... <laughs> I believe we're on a what two game two game win streak now. So nope. when you talk about not compounding mistakes, uh, one it's it's one person picking up the other person, and I think and when you're playing by yourself, it's just living one shot at a time. So uh, if you're able to get it up there and be able to two putt and just keep the pressure on your on your opponent, I think that's what what it comes down to. I think we might cons- there's some psychologists that call that recency bias. We'll see how it pans out over the summer. Yeah, Ben, didn't just we mop the floor with wait. him at Quail Valley? I think just yeah, we nice. were probably one five and four. That's it was kind of yeah. how I remember it. It's an interesting point though, like like actual tying into Ben's point though, because Ben shot a literal seventy two last when we played, right? Yeah. And, even par. And like pretty much he was playing incredible golf, but you guys were playing a little bit better than average, and Ben was just so mad every time he got to the green because he would make his, his like par, and they'd be like, well, Ken, you got to make this 10-foot putt to win, and I miss it every time. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I think I'm going to get killed by Ben every time, too, but he gives me 25 strokes, and I have a chance. <laughs> I think Ken and I probably could have done a little better job. We're we should, doing we, so much better. We just probably should have done wait. a little more out. strategy. First, That's all we could have used. We literally did no strategy. I know. We just, we just went after We also got to give Ken a shout-out. You know, he started with... Two pars, two greens and reg. It was impressive yeah. stuff. Yeah, you said I couldn't get three greens and reg in and a row. And you didn't. But I almost did. <laughs> almost doesn't count. Almost. Almost did. I almost made an eagle once. Yeah. Well, I made an eagle. I have. So it's speaking ninth, of this. A glade. Ninth of glade. Proud of you. Yeah. So we've talked about this 13th hole, which if you didn't watch over the weekend or on Thursday and Friday, is a, is a drivable par four, a fairway out to the right that you can lay up on, and then a green that you can drive. So it's 283 to the front, 303 to the back. A uh, little controversy with, with the grandstands being a little bit of a backstop. But Ken, Ken and Josh have some thoughts here about like the whole architecture and then Josh's thoughts on the grandstands as well. Yeah, I mean, we can just talk about it generally. I, I don't know. I, I like We're just going to keep highlighting a couple holes this week. And I, every time they got to the 13th or 14th, I thought it was the point where, like, you know, the match started to heat up. And this is where some guys either, like, made some mistakes or actually kind of um, got a hold of the match. And yeah, I think it's great placement. These holes are so well placed in, like, the course of an 18-hole match. This is yeah. where it goes down. I mean, stuff we're looking out for, I think, like, there was a pretty iconic, like, the, the iconic bridge is in the background. The TV panned out here. A lot of the boats on the on the lake were there. It seemed like a really social atmosphere. And I, I, I don't know, I, just, I think, like, um, we're going to be looking out for signature holes. Obviously, next week we got a couple coming up. Um, then we got the Masters, obviously. But um, I don't know, 13 to 14 just seemed like the most fun part of this course because the water really came into play on the back nine. And um, I, I know Dub has a thought about the – and I agree with your your comment on the, um, the grandstands. It was a kind of a wild – Kind of a wild setting. Yeah, I really love the 13th hole with one big exception. I am so out on these grandstands serving as an absolute backboard. Like you on saw these hitting them. Yeah, right? instead yeah. of, you know, the smart plays, you lay up in the fairway and you have a 100 yard shot in and you tee off with an iron, or you take driver and try and clear 300 to get to the green, or you just pound driver way over the green into the grandstands, get a free drop where you're sitting dead red with a wedge in. So it really took away the strategy of it. And I don't know that there's a way to fix it. Maybe you change the rule a little bit. In instances like that, your temporary immovable obstruction rule is a little bit more penal where you don't get a free drop sitting right in the fairway or the the short rough and have an easy shot in. It'd be interesting if they made it like 
the rule like oh you you get a drop but it's behind it like far enough where you you have to like clear like reasonably able to clear over it but like you totally just, just wants to flop it over the grandstand that's all he's trying to do right there. i mean i have the best flop game in the game what I mean, do you think what, oh go ahead ben. i was saying they def, they 100 don't want to discourage the players from going for the green but i agree a drop zone that's not as pretty as yeah just like in like a pretty low moan area behind the green even though that green was really fast working back toward the water with these guys short games it's just nothing what was kind of cool about this 13th is i kind of saw it as a comment of a uh, combination of 17 and 18 on the at the players so like it has a yeah. kind of, it has like an island green feel to it like when the guys were going for it but it has, reach it, yeah. it has the same shape as the 18th where there's the water just hugging the whole left side so it was kind of a i don't know i just was like every time this hole was on i just like stopped and watched it and i think it's a real this little like strip of land coming off to the left I, like i'm wondering i was wondering if anyone's ever actually like accidentally hit it landed on, on there <laughs> and, and, and i remember watching weird bounce. well watching yeah. the players or no it wasn't the players the it was players like, jordan was on the the thing of the 17th it was another turn i think it was the waste management right where there's like the 18th kind of has a fairway that kind of goes from right to left across and jt and there's water in front and jt had hooked the ball so bad he ended up on the other side of the water and it was just like what a coincidence <laughs> and i think he made par but yeah, I mean, this is the brilliance of a Pete Dye design here. It really puts an emphasis on strategy. So the, the smart play played off the tee out in the middle of the fairway. You saw these guys try and go for the green with drivers. And what was it? Early rounds. We saw a lot of guys chip it from over the green, back onto the green, rolling it into the water. Yeah. I mean, it was it was amazing to see these guys going for the green, hit a really good drive, and then chip it into the water and lose the hole to the opponent who just kind of played it safe and, and took their par and walked away. You know, one thing I noticed, and I don't know why this surprises me because these guys are just all so good, but there wasn't a single ball put in the water this week on a, on a layup off the tee. So you're still hitting a, a shot that's something like 200 to 230 yards, and this fairway is certainly not very wide. Uh, and I remember, you know, I, as we watched coverage, uh, the camera was kind of like, you know, 100 yards past the guys on the tee and then off to the right. So we kind of saw them hit into the fairway on our right. And I once saw, and I saw a picture at the end of coverage showing what it actually looks like to tee off from that tee to emit that fairway. It is no cakewalk. It is hitting over. It doesn't, you don't, you don't look like you're hitting over water, but it's all right there. It was literally like that picture, like with all the fans though, too, like where you, there's that commercial where like Tiger has to like hit through fans and he gives like a, to like an amateur and it's just, they put up the cardboard cutouts. Like there's fans just right in front of you. If you try to not go for it, it's kind of wild. There's also a really cool catwalk right beside the tee box. Did you guys see that? I think like almost like boats could come in and stop and get off. But it was like, you could stand up a good 15 feet above the players. Wow. How far did they have to hit it to like, just put it in the middle of the fairway? Do we know? I think it kind of varied, like, because there was different like approaches between yeah, anywhere from anywhere from two hundred to two thirty kind of thing. So like so. they were probably hitting what like seven, six irons off. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, and it, probably probably like five and four irons when it wind wind wasn't blowing, but uh, still like not a very wide fairway. Probably only like twenty yards wide, and it gets it bottlenecks up toward the green. Um, and there's kind of the grandstands kind of framing it on the right. They were also very close to the fairway, so just like an optical, a classic Pete Dye thing, but of optical illusion where the fairway. From the tee box looks super small, and then you get up there, and it's kind of a little wider than you think. We call that a forced perspective in the architecture world. Nice. Okay, I think that does it for our talking points of the week. Tyler, Never let's get mind. a recap on these picks. Uh, we have a winner in our midst. Let's give him some credit. We've got a winner, so naturally we have to start Next out with segment. Double L Tully. Next segment. Tully, big win with your boy Scotty following in my footsteps, which we're following <laughs> Colin's Son. footsteps. So, I mean, it was a pretty unique pick for your part, but uh, you got the win. What are your thoughts on Scotty for the week? I mean, I really look at this as a, as a podcast win. I mean, let's just say the podcast starts. Colin picks Scotty. Scotty gets his first win. A couple weeks later, somebody else picks Scotty. Scotty wins. A couple weeks later, again, we pick Scotty and he wins. 
I'm not saying he needs us to succeed, but we definitely need him to succeed. We need some Scotty. Yeah. We need Scotty on this podcast. Overall, it was a pretty poor showing for the boys with these picks. Kind of goes to show what we were saying last week, where you see some low-ranked golfers get out of pool play. Four of our picks did not make it out of the group play. Uh, Justin Thomas, Victor Hovland, Patrick Cantley, and Xander Shoffley. Probably four easily top seven golfers, maybe, not even making it out of pool play. And then we also saw Colin with his pick of Dustin Johnson finish fourth. Very impressive showing. Had a great match with Scotty. Colin, did you think you had a chance with DJ as the day was progressing? Oh, my gosh. Going into Sunday morning, I was feeling so good. I had DJ and Corey Connors, my long shot pick, both in the semifinals. I thought on both sides of the bracket, I'm like, I just need one of these guys to win, and I've got a chance to win here. And then, of course, worst case scenario, they both go down. Both my boys are playing for third place. My boys. We got to give you a shout out, though, for Corey Connors. Plus 5,500 to win, and he finishes third. He was right in it to the very end. So that's that's an awesome long shot pick. One of these weeks, we're going to hit that, and it is going to be amazing. He actually lays down to Kevin Kisner almost. So on 17, he hits the – it's like a front right pin. He hits a wedge like three feet off the green. It's got a little bit of a, a hilly putt to negotiate, but blows it like eight feet by and then makes bogey to eventually just pretty much gift – the tournament or gift the match to Kevin Kisner. So easily could have seen Corey Connors in the finals. Well, it only seems fair because DJ basically gifted him third place because DJ had zero desire to be there for that, you know, consolation round. I agree with that too. But also DJ just doesn't play those first few holes very well. He got, he got, you know, who did he play? So he played Scotty and then, so he got, and he was what three or four down Scotty Mm -hmm. six holes in. So it just, it just proves to show like how important it is to play well at the beginning of a match play match. DJ was absolutely tearing up that back nine though. I mean, as soon as he got to the 12th hole, you know, like three down, four down, he had, he was right in it. Just enough to finish in fourth. And then, so Telly, I'll give you some credit here because I think this is a weird week to try and pick a winner. Like, it's just a lot, a lot happens in match Thank play. You. So I think, like, you know, when you pick a guy to win a regular tournament, you see a lot of things in his game that you might like. But I think when you pick a winner for match play, you're looking a lot deeper. You're looking at a guy's like mental side, his short game, things that you might not consider when you're looking at a regular tournament. To be fair, only a quarter of the guys make it in a match play event, and we had higher than that, so we were above average. Right? Yes, we were. Look at us. Yeah. Look at us. Look at us. All right, we'll talk to you in a sec about Valero Texas Open. All right, so looking forward to this week, we have the Valero Texas Open being played at TPC San Antonio, the AT&T Oaks course. This is only the 12th year at TPC San Antonio. Actually, uh, this course, three months after it was constructed, held its first tournament here, so it's a relatively new course. However, it will be the 100th year of the Valero Texas Open, uh, the first installment in 1922 at Breckenridge Park. So, uh, the third oldest tournament on the PGA schedule and the oldest to still be played in the same city. So lots of history here. Past three champions include Jordan Spieth, Corey Connors, and Andrew Landry. Our purse this week will be $7.8 million with $1.4 roughly going to the winner. So not anywhere close to like the players and some of the tournaments we've seen, but a middle-of-the-road tournament for the PGA Tour. Uh, since the year 2000, the winning score has been anywhere between 8-under and 20-under, so the weather and the Texas winds definitely play a huge part in what happens this week. It doesn't play as firm and fast as last week in Austin, so I was watching some videos, and the, and the fairways are fairly soft, so you're really going to need a good iron play this week to, to take home the title. 
Uh, and there's only water on two holes. It's a pretty unusual characteristic for a modern course, uh, especially seeing some of the courses we've seen over the past few weeks, like TPC Sawgrass. It's just water on every hole. Uh, so then another really cool point for this week is that Jason Aldean and Darius Rucker will be performing. Uh, Don't you pretty, have a funny Jason Aldean story? It's pretty well, I like the I, fa- I just correctly? love the fact that we're seeing more music at these places like the mm. waste management. But yeah, I do have a funny story. So uh, my wife and I went to go see Jason Aldean back in like 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and a song came on where he starts singing about throwing a football. Uh, so I was like a couple beers deep. And I was like, hey, watch me, Daryl. I'll, really? I'll, I'll throw a football, right? And I threw the football and on my follow through. I just whacked a lady in the back of the head so hard, and it was completely unintentional. But uh, it, it eventually was she okay. She was okay. I don't think she was okay with me, but she was okay. So it eventually led to us kind of moving back to the nosebleeds and eventually leaving because I thought she was going to call security on. Is me. that a bad omen for your picks this week? I feel like that's probably bad there. not a chance. Ben yeah. wins this week. Well, I tell you what. We last week before violence. the Masters, we don't condone violence. I don't know. We got, <laughs> not a lot of field. Not a lot of great players in this field this week. But it's a really big tune-up for the Masters. So uh, week before, what are our thoughts? this week guys i mean i'm really excited for the tournament just because of that exact reason it is that final tune-up for a lot of players and you know yes it may not be the strongest field especially compared to you know we had the players we have the match play which is all like you know top players in the world but in this case we do we have multiple major winners that are in the field um that are you know maybe looking to tune up their game as well as you have a lot of people that are looking to try to secure a spot because the winner of this tournament does get you know, entry into that Masters, and at this point, you know, last week was the cutoff for a change in your world rankings getting you that invite, so this is, you know, that last last dis, last stitch effort for them to get in, so I think you might kind of see a lot of people, you know, going at it. I think, you know, we've talked about Dick Bland already. He's playing, you know, with that hopes of trying to get in there, and there's a bunch of players that are, you know, didn't quite get it get far enough in the match play or in whatever the other tournament that they played last week as well, so... I think you could see some interesting stuff here, um, as well as it's just kind of interesting to see the the two different mindsets. You, know, you got people that choose to skip out the week before playing a major, and then people that are like, "I, I need to play." Is it is it better to feel like you're comfortable with your game, or to be have that competitive advantage going in? You know, I don't know. What do you guys think there? Yeah, it's surprising to me. Um, I definitely lean more towards the playing in the week before the major. Uh, you want to definitely be in your routine. And when I saw this this field, I was like, why is it such a weak field? I uh, didn't really think about some of the guys just skipping to focus in, getting ready to play the Masters. But as I'm looking at some of the guys at the top of the favorites board for this week, I've never even heard of the 15th ranked guy. Rasmus Hoisgaard, however you pronounce it. I've been watching Vikings, so you'd think I'd be able to pronounce it better. <laughs> but I can do Ragnar Lothbrook. I can do all those guys. But I don't know. I can do Rasmus, so we'll, we'll just be on a first-name basis. But before I pulled this up, I'd never even heard of the guy. And he's 15th-ranked golfer in the field this week, the week new before enemy. the Masters. Got a new enemy, Ty. I, I need an enemy that, that name I can pronounce. So <laughs> that's why, I, I mean, Dick Bland, that's my enemy. <laughs> I do love, so not knowing, so that guy is like a really solid player in the European Tour. And I so think, is Louis. Thinking about our guy like Gary. Kigo, right? It's like we're really starting to see this fusion between guys that kind of make their come up on the European Tour and then come out and play well on the PGA Tour. But Tully, I wanted to I wanted to get back to your point. So if you check out our Instagram, uh, we probably I think our story might still be live. Uh, we posted a picture of the last five guys that just got into the field based on world rank after the WGC. Uh, but it's something to think about when you think about long shots this week. These guys are going to be probably pedal to the metal because you know if you're the 115th ranked player in the world. 
you know, making a cut might not be that important to you. You know, you got a lot of tournaments left in the year, uh, but if you got a chance to win and get yourself into the Masters and then probably the other majors as well, it's it's it's, it's something to play for. Speaking about Instagram posts, can we do a post with like three random people and one of them's Rasmus and see who can <laughs> identify him? Because I'm I'm trying to solidify my point here. Which nobody one? knows who this is. <laughs> Name he looks Pokemon. like a fucking Rasmus, dude. <laughs> But to go back to Tully's point, uh, and to disagree a little bit here with Tyler, I think if I'm one of those top guys on tour that's already qualified, qualified a long time ago, I think I'm taking a week to kind of get my mind right, maybe play, get there to Augusta early, play some practice rounds. I just think, especially at the highest level here, the PGA Tour, playing through two, at least two, potentially four rounds and really competing for a championship, that's got to be tough on your mind and grueling and tiring. And I think I just want to get in the right headspace and play play a few practice rounds and just get my get my mind right. So yeah, do like, you think that Rory just intentionally misses the cut so he can get to get to Augusta faster? <laughs> I think he's got too many nightmares from Augusta to do that. Yeah, knowing how superstitious some of these guys are, I think the record's pretty bleak. I don't think we've ever had a person win the week before the Masters and then go do well at the Masters. So sitting it out just to have history on your side. Speaking of Rory, is there a reason he didn't play last week but's playing this week? It's just a scheduling issue. I don't know. These guys are weird. Like, I think we talked about why nobody plays in the Honda because it's the first Eastern Swing event, and the guys, like, have a tough time kind of moving their life that they've been living for a month or two out on the West Coast back to the East Coast. But for Rory, I think it was pretty interesting not to see him in the WGC and then see him here. I mean, this is a fun event this week, the, the Valero. Um, it's a cool course. It's a solid field. But it's not an event that I feel like he should be going out of his way to – to not get an extra week of prep for the Masters. Yeah, I really think it's definitely one of those things where most people that are playing in this, like with there are exceptions, like Jordan Spieth playing in this, you know, it probably has more to do with him being from Texas and uh, the returning champion sort of situation. But you have someone like Rory, like that maybe he's got issues at Augusta. He's had that, you know, historic collapse after having a huge lead that maybe he just wants to, he's trying to really fine tune every part of his up. game. In a in that competitive nature sort of situation, I think that that's what that's what I, probably what I'm thinking is going on with Rory. I don't know about you guys, but you know, like when you get to something too early and you got to sit around and wait, like you can you get a little like clammy and you're like, I think if Rory's like if he's playing this week, his mind is off of Augusta because he doesn't need to do any practicing at Augusta. He doesn't need anything with Augusta. He just needs to have a good week, and that's all kind of. It's already there for him. He's got the game. He knows the course. So I think he's probably just trying to keep his mind off of this looming cloud over him of not being able to win a Masters. Yeah, I think you got a great point. I mean, that that's definitely the approach I always take going up to our golf trip. You know, I'm golfing and boozing the entire time, so I'm too excited otherwise. And I just <laughs> I can't handle it. But I think it's like um, someone like JT is going – he's already there, right, in Augusta? What's, yeah, he's there what, with Tiger. Let me ask you a question. Like, What do you think um, – what's the most practice round someone's playing? Like five leading up to the Masters? I don't really play – they kind of like hit tee shots and chip and putt and put tees on the greens, but uh, well, you know, most of them, they probably only actually play like nine holes most most practice days. They're just going right. to they're trying to go out there because like you know between them and their caddy, they have enough notes about the course to know where to hit it. They're just trying to get a real feel for like maybe just like how heavy the air is or how the greens are rolling or how the grass is you know the the Bermuda yeah. grass around the green is sticking. Like yeah. they're really not trying to learn the course. So I definitely think they're going a lot to like certain holes that they right. know yeah, maybe corner, are difficult kind of to them. Yeah. The ones that maybe don't fit their game and trying to figure out how they want to play that. So it's, they may be playing 15, seven times and that's all they actually do in a given day other than like range sessions. I think, I think Ben's right though. It's two different types of thinkers, people that overthink and people that, you know, if they just kind of want to stay away until the course, until the masters happens and people that really want to go and prep and aren't thinking about it. Yeah. Like JT. I, I also think there's a little bit of a limitation on how much you can really go there and practice i mean there is we'll yeah. talk about here in a minute but there's another big event going on oh, there yeah, this true. weekend so it's not like there's 
it's not a ton it's not of time season. for them to get out there. Sure. And I don't know what they say. Like, I guess maybe if you qualify, you can show up whenever you want and have a practice round, like earlier in the season. I'm or sure they're squeezing to, Justin Thomas yeah. in that whenever he wants. Well, I recall seeing like a segment where uh, not Ragnar, some, <laughs> somebody <laughs> qualified for the Masters this year that's never played it before and got a practice round like uh, last fall, I think, or something like that. He was talking about how it was cool to go there. So yeah, they definitely limit your exposure there. Like, it's not open open season there for sure. Um, but these guys are probably just trying to get there for as much course as much time as they can get on the course is great but they're really just trying to get in a rhythm right get on the same sleep schedule I mean, most of them have been east coast but you know it's something to be said about going an hour time zone behind and then coming an hour time zone ahead it's not a lot of time but it's enough to throw you off to get you thinking nice and then so yeah so with the valero this week we can't we can't uh talk about this tournament unless we talk about charlie the seagull hoffman colin yeah and so around the tour they're calling they actually call the valero texas open the charlie hoffman open just how well he's played this thing i mean He's the event's money leader of all time. Uh, he's played in 10 straight events here, I think, and he's never missed the cut. He won here in 2016. I think he was runner-up last year. Unfortunately, Charlie's in some of the poorest form of his career right now, coming off of two straight missed cuts, but this seems like the perfect place to turn things around, especially one week before the Masters and a chance to qualify. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, t- Charlie's nickname is actually the Seagull. I never knew tour. that. I never yeah. knew that. I love that. I love that. So he's quoted in an interview with Colton Noser. He, they asked him about it, and he said, well, seagulls are actually known for flying around and shitting on people, so <laughs> I guess you can call me a seagull. Seagulls are known for stealing my sandwich out of my hands on the beach, and I'm really bitter about it still. But yeah, I think I don't think we can talk about this tournament without bringing up Charlie, and even though he's Good not one. playing well, just... Uh, <laughs> it's a true horror story, damn it. I, so I, I think it's a great point to talk about Charlie. I think about Charlie, I think about... Well, Charlie Hoffman, I think about Jordan Spieth, Andrew Landry, Corey Connors, all these guys. I don't know. I, I didn't really think about this making my pick, but they all play like this mid-height, like loopy draw, and they, they all kind of main that shot. And I think, well, especially to pay well in the Texas wins, you got to be able to hit a ball that doesn't spin up in the air. But um, to see Charlie do really well at this tournament, he hits the ball pretty far, uh, but I think he's classically just such a solid iron player. Yeah, I mean, Colin's definitely right here. Like, Charlie is low-key dominated this tournament and that's why you know you're gonna see when you look at our instagram that some of us are very high on charlie this week so you know definitely go out and check that out so other than the players in the field we got some uh we got some interesting holes coming down the stretch here kenny talk to us about them course designed by greg norman which is interesting sergio as a consultant which i didn't realize that sergio was in the course design game maybe that's on me i don't know but um he just slapped his name on yeah, it just knowing extra just, money just, <laughs> just knowing greg he just like hey sergio come put your name on this yeah. so we can make more money um but yeah i wanted to highlight two holes this week uh the 16th and the 18th um i guess that's kind of a theme that the you know the final couple holes here are going to be the ones we start to highlight but um something to look out for um, on the six, the sixteenth is a par three that has a, a bunker right in the middle of the green, which is pretty cool. Um, and the eighteenth is a is a par five that has a stream that comes into play that makes the final approach pretty tough. So, um, I, I I does Riviera have a bunker in the middle of a green? Is that I think yeah. it was at the Genesis, and I we think, saw like some cool shots from like Rory and such out of that. Yeah, when I was reading about this, I think that was the actually direct inspiration for this, and they just took it. Maybe Sergio was like, "Yeah, put that on there." Um, so that seems like a fun, I don't know where the pin plays is going to be, but, um, you know, I'm Sunday, I'm sure it's gonna be really difficult, maybe right behind it or right to the left or right to the right of it. Um, and yeah, the, the 18th seems like a really killer final hole. I mean, it seems like getting to the green and two is going to be really tough. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but I think that's going to be make for a lot of fun on, uh, on Sunday. Well, it looks like here on 18 too, we have like a bit of a, a split fairway inside like 150. Yeah, and yeah. I really love when courses have these, these, because technically speaking, I, I assume that. 
when you go for the green and if you end up in the left side fairway, you actually have, probably have a t- harder approach than if you lay up to the right. So they're kind of trying to a little penalizing for if you miss, if you're going for the green, but it's just a beautiful hole as well. Yeah. This 18th hole, I think it all comes down to the second shot. I mean, I don't think you can get to that water on the left with your tee ball, but if you're in the fairway, you got decisions to make. Either you go up the left and you try to get there and bring the water into play, or you just play it safe down the right and then leave yourself 80 yards in for a, a get up and down for birdie. It definitely looks like one of those holes where like, I think a lot of people are going to play it more on the safe side. Like you, I think you'll probably see like a Bryson or something like that go for it. But it, it gave me also, like we've talked about a few times, like Augusta vibes. I think it's like 15 or so that it has that, that raised Creek kind of going right across the front of it that if you're going up, right, it's given, I feel like it's a very similar shot and looking from like Ken's diagram here, it's that same kind of like downhill looking sort of situation. So I think it'll be kind of a nice little precursor for us. Do you guys prefer, a hole that has like a high variance like this with like a birdieable par five or a tough par four to finish out on a tournament. I think finishing on a par five is a lot of fun because just the, the variance can be, yeah, it can just go so many different ways. I know when I'm watching, I see a, a, a scoring opportunity like this. I'm always more tuned in. I'm definitely on the same side give me that variable par five as well as in this case, give me that one where if I accidentally, you know, out of nowhere, shank a shot left, I got this random landing area over here that kind of saves me as well. Yeah. I think it definitely makes it really exciting. We saw it again this past week down in Austin, the 18th wasn't a par five, but a drivable par four created the true risk reward opportunity, which I think makes it really electric coming down the stretch to see these guys kind of have to consider, do I play it safe, go for an easy par or do I go for that birdie? Yeah, just to play devil's advocate here a bit, I think I go long par four to answer Ben's question there. I mean, when I'm watching a tournament, I'm kind of always in the back of my mind hoping for a playoff. So if a guy's like one shot, two shots up going into the 18th, a par five, pretty much all I used to do is birdie it and force, or sorry, par it and force the other guy to make birdie. Tough par four, if he's if he hits it not in the fairway, he's potentially in trouble and at risk of bogey and throwing it in himself. So I'm going with long par four. I definitely agree with that from a PGA Tour perspective. From a personal perspective, give me all the extra strokes I can possibly get. Yeah, I think on tour, you're probably going to have a par five in the last few holes anyways. So I prefer a long, hard par four because it's, it's way more impressive to see a leader march down an 18th hole like a TPC Sawgrass. Even though Cam made bogey there, he still just had such composure and poise to be able to get up and down from like 60 yards. So the par fives are really fun, but I think this like, uh, you know, the guy's done a really good job of like getting through 17 holes to hold a lead for the whole entire day. I don't really like an 18th hole kind of screwing that up because some guy just hits an unbelievable shot and makes an eagle. I said, I think that recaps our, our course update this week. So, Tyler, let's look at the picks this week. Yeah, looking at the top 10 for this week, the favorite to win is Rory McIlroy at plus 700. Uh, going down the list, we've got Jordan Spieth at plus 1,100. Hideki Matsuyama at plus 1,400. Corey Connors at plus 1,600. Abraham Anser plus 2,200. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau plus 2,400. Siwoo Kim at plus 3,100. Keegan Bradley at plus 3,300. And rounding out the top 10, we've got Maverick McNeely and Gary Woodland at plus 3,400. So going up to the top of the list, looking at our favorite pick for the week, uh, Dubs at the highest on the list, going with Collins. Uh, potential long shot winner last week of Corey Connors. Dub plus 1,600 for Corey Connors. What makes you think he's going to have a good repeat performance? Yeah, just like we talked about Charlie Hoffman. Uh, with having great course history. Corey Connors won here in 2019, had another top 10 last year. He plays this course really well. I believe that was his first win on tour uh, back in 2019 and has kind of hit the ground running ever since. But fatigue may be a factor here. He played the maximum amount of golf, making it to the consolation round. But you got to throw in there, 
He had one concession playing Paul Casey, who just showed up to concede matches. All right, Pete Paul. And then his... <laughs> Hope your back's his, okay. Hope your back's okay. We'll have we'll him get, get well soon. Paul's uh, injury release, uh, his update will be on the pod next week. He's going to be on, actually. It's big news. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming, yeah, Paul. Thanks for coming, Paul. We appreciate it. And then his third place match was just a walk in the park with uh, Dustin Johnson not even showing up for that round. So that was an easy round. So not too concerned about that. He's a great ball striker. Gets off the tee really well. This is one of the easiest courses off the tee. I think the rough is in the bottom two or three courses as far as how penalizing it is if you drive it in there. So he's he's going to be consistently having great shots into the greens, and he can really lean on that solid approach game of his. He putted really well last week, which is kind of the hole in the boat of his golf game. It, it really kind of holds him back at times, but it looked good last week. I, I look for him to kind of carry the momentum going forward here. Yeah, I swear I heard someone on the broadcast talk about how the opposite. They were talking about how Corey Connors is always such a good putter and his ball striking holds him back. And I'm like, wait a second. That's not true. But I think he putted, he did putt really well, but this is not a course that like we've seen over this, you know, East coast swing, uh, where the greens are just diabolical. This is a course that's, you're right. It's a ball. It's a ball strikers course. Uh, it's, it's being able to, to hit a lot of greens. And I think he's a, he's a solid pick this week, Josh. And not to mention, we didn't take any of the top three favorites. So dub your odds on favorite this week. Next on the list. Uh, I went with Abe answer at plus 2200. Um, he kind of plays like me. He's not long off the tee. He keeps it in play. Uh, one of the things that I had in my head when I was thinking about it for Abe is that, yes, yeah, it's Texas. It's hot. It's dry. He'll get a little extra yardage on his drives. And then I hear Ben give his recap of the course, and he's saying how soft the fairways are. So I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit. I'm hoping we get a nice dry week there in Texas so that Abe can get a little extra roll on his drives. I'm looking for him to stay in play, have a solid week hitting the irons. I think Abe has a very good chance of get with this slightly weaker field this week to have a good showing. I like it. I think there's a real reason Abe is up here in fifth. Like I think there's some players after him that you play well. You probably think like might be a little better than Abe, but he's top twenty five in the world. But the one thing that Abe does well and that I was looking at on the scorecard is most of these par threes play two hundred to two thirty. And an Abe answer is easily one of the best long iron players in the world. So you're not necessarily gonna confirm to make a lot of birdies on those long par threes, but there's gonna be a lot of guys making bogey after bogey on those things. Kenny, no Vic, no Paul. No burger. Where does one go? No Where problem. does what one do go? Do? It looks no like problem. Kenny's going with Bryson DeChambeau, plus 2,400. Zigging. Adam Noah's art. Doing everything else. I'm going Kenny. with uh, Dub's favorite golfer. As we said in the first podcast the first week, I don't forget. we don't forget that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to zig whenever else is zagging here on Bryson. I, I think it's just a uh, – sometimes in your betting, you just have to do the exact opposite of what everyone's saying. So I think this is one of those weeks um, – I, I, I totally get the agreement that he might take it easy pre-masters. He's not in good shape. He probably, uh, you know, is it still at 80%. It's not a course that maybe plays to some of his strengths. But um, I, I think, you know, I think he's a guy that wants to win. And I think the, guy, the guys that want to win, when they see other guys succeeding and they see other guys kind of taking their mantle, I think Scotty's taken like the, uh, the Bryson, you know, big chin, beefy um, <laughs> mantle. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I think that... Uh, 20 plus 2400 i think is good value on bryson to get out there with the field that's missing a lot of the guys in the top 20 and i i feel good about him yeah i feel like it's not often you see bryson at plus 2400 so like you said with the lowest he's had in a long time yeah with a weaker field like that's that's great odds to get him out if he can return to form i think that he wants his name in the headlines going up to masters week even though we were talking about maybe he's going to be a little more in the background this time like he definitely wants the chatter about him and i think if he makes a really good showing if he even gets a top 10 this week or a top, you know, top fifteen, and really is in contention that he's gonna like be 
um, kind of improve his master's odds. So I, th- I think he's like, I think he has like a PR team kind of looking for that, looking for a good finish here. I think, and when you think about the rust, so the rust that Bryson had last week, his game looked okay. He was just literally hitting his driver on a different planet. So if he can just rein his driver in a little bit, I don't really think there's that much rust on his game. His short game and putting looked really solid. Um, and like Bryson can do with any course, he could just overpower this place. It's not quite as penalizing off the tee as some of those holes in, in TBC Austin. Yeah, jumping to Colin, double L, the OG, going with double E, Keegan, plus 3,300. What, what do you like about Keegan this week? Yeah, I honestly just pick Keegan because I like rooting for the guy, and he's a fellow Jordan rep. I kind of carry that torch here on the podcast <laughs> since a lot of these losers don't like to see basketball shoes oh. out on the course. But, um, hey. Double he's only, L loser. He, he's only missed one cut this, all year. Uh, he's 14th on tour in strokes gained off the tees, 12th on tour in strokes gained tee to green. I think he has a really good chance this week, especially if he can get his putter hot. I mean, I'm reading that players are hitting this green, these greens here at like a 61% clip, which is well below the tour average, and Keegan's currently 15th on tour in the proximity to hole when he's approaching the green. So why not take a flyer on Keegan here? Yeah, like you're saying, everything, the stats line up, we'll just see if he can pull it out. Uh, Tully at plus 3,400 going with Maverick McNeely. Is this another one of your guys that is still looking for his we, first win on tour? We need a Maverick McNeely pose because I have no idea what he looks like. Rasmus. Let's get let's get Rasmus and McNeely and put, three other random guys up there. We'll put the two of them up and try to get Rasmus. I bet you don't even get a 50-50. Context clues. Anyways, yeah, you are right. You know, Anyone that's been following the pod you know, outside of last week knows I love the people that don't, don't really have too many wins which explains a lot of my success when it comes to gambling. But Maverick's been playing well. You know, he's got an exceptional name, obviously. But he's been made, made 12 of his last 13 cuts, including five top 20 finishes. You know, a solid showing. He didn't make it out of group play, but he did absolutely dominate uh, Joaquin Neiman in the first round of the week. You know, eight and six victory. You know, he's he's got all the abilities. He was, you know, lucky to get into that match play. But it's, it's kind of one of those guys that feels like he's, has to come around at some point he's gonna get a win eventually and as you you kind of mentioned earlier you know it's one of those weaker fields that you know maybe this is a chance where he has you know has that ability to break through get into the masters all that kind of stuff yeah i love this pick a lot and you know interestingly enough i believe i saw that he played the best last week in group play and didn't even make it out of his group so like you said he body bagged neiman with an eight and six or something like that and played really two really solid rounds should have made it out of group play, lost in a playoff, but he hit the ball the best through the first three days of the, the match play. Yeah, you know, it's got to happen around one time, right? Yeah, Benny, wrap up the picks for us. You got Gary Woodland at plus 3,400, lowest along with Maverick of our picks, but what makes you feel so confident about him this week? Yeah, Gary had a T5 at Honda, a T5 at the Arnold Palmer. After a notable meltdown that we all saw out in public, it was just an atrocity. You know, hits it in the bunker on 17, leaves in the bunker, doesn't even make bogey, makes double. Uh, the wind started swirling. He just completely melted down. Had a solid tie, uh, tie for 20th at the Valspar. Um, and I kind of think with a good bounce here or there that, that Gary Woodland could easily have like two wins, and this could easily have been the year of Gary. So a T6 here last year. I uh, like his ball flight in the Texas wins. Nobody, nobody hits a stinger like Gary Woodlands. So that's why I picked him. Yeah, let's not forget, that's, that's another one of those uh, major champions that's in this field. So he definitely has the ability to go out there and you know, win. We keep saying, like, the Texas wind. Can someone describe to me what the Texas wind There's actually is? There's nothing out there to stop it. Yeah, it just blows. It's just <laughs> Okay, so it's like a thing. It's a thing. The Texas wind is a thing. Do you need a sound, sound bite? <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that, we're going to cut the segment. <laughs> Nice. All right. We'll follow up with some long shots on Instagram and we'll be back in a second to talk about lady golf in the big week we got coming up.
All right, a pretty cool week coming up in women's golf. Let's start with the LPGA. They'll be at the Chevron Championship, which is the first major of the year for the ladies. So really, really important golf, bigger purses. Uh, this is previously known as the A&A Inspiration. I just changed the Chevron uh, a few years. Actually, is it this first year? This is the first year with the Chevron. Uh, so it's a new partnership, increasing the prize pool 60% to $5 million. So some really great stuff in the women's game. It's being played at Mission Hills Country Club in Rancho Mirage, California, where it's been played uh, since 1983, since it was a major. Um, this will actually be their last year here, so although we're going to cover this course, it's a really great course, a fun tournament, uh, some really famous parts about this course. They're moving to Houston next year, so don't get too comfy. Patty Tavitanikit is the defending champion, posting the second lowest score in tournament history last year. I remember watching a really fun tournament, and she's really uh, turned into quite the star. This tournament is famously known for what they call the Poppy's Pond on the 18th hole. So you'll see the winner of the tournament famously with their caddy and then their family jump into the pond, get the robe after and do their interviews like just soaking wet. It's just hilarious. So they go with a robe instead of like a green jacket kind of thing? Yeah, it's really great. That's are they awesome. Mo- are they moving Poppy's Pond? No, they can't move Poppy's Pond to Houston. <laughs> wow. Last year for Poppy's Pond, huh? Like, I'll, let me call him and see if they can move Poppy's Pond. <laughs> I'm sure Chevron, it can be done. We're going to have to redo some shit. Poppy's Pond's actually famously named after the old tournament director, Terry Wilcox, who was known oh, as uh, Poppy to his seven grandchildren. Yes. One other, one other interesting note about this tournament. Um, it's been uh, been the playoff four years out of, four out of the last seven years. So don't be surprised if we have some playoff golf this week. So kick around to the guys. Let's see what we think about this week in LPGA golf. Yeah, like you mentioned here, we have a new sponsor taking over this major tournament, bringing with it some bittersweet of, of leaving a kind of legacy tournament or legacy course here they've been playing for a while, but kind of brighter horizons ahead with more money rolling in and playing a new course is, is kind of a theme of where the LPGA Tour is at right now. They've got a lot of positive momentum rolling forward, and especially this year, we're starting to see a lot of big investments from larger corporations. And it's really interesting because I, I think as we'll talk about a little bit more later, but the talent on the LPGA Tour is incredible how much young talent there is with <clears throat> stars from across the world. And the investment is really starting to finally catch up with the talent. Normally, you know, you see it the other way around. The talent draws the investments or the investments draw the talent in. But with this, we're seeing a little bit opposite. And and this year specifically, the total purse for the season is upwards of $90 million compared to last year which was only $67.5 million, so a huge jump. So we're making a lot of progress towards drawing up the uh, standards of the LPGA Tour and the quality of the tournaments. And talking the most notably, there's going to be a $10 million purse for the, the U.S. Ladies Open this year, which I think Damn. is over double what it was last year. At Pine Needles, which we played, so we'll do a segment on that. It's early Ooh. June, first weekend in June. Can we yeah, go back? Yeah, we we're going to have to go back and watch. Is and it the place at the bar, the low bar where you walk in and the bartenders are like, yep, yeah, yeah, that was the one. Standing look. Yeah, okay. That's really nice. Yeah, so it's, it's really cool to see some of these big corporations kind of stepping up and, and deciding to make some investments here. And, and with that, too, we're starting to see a lot of these events taking place at, at the courses that men have traditionally played at. Some of the iconic courses, whether it's the British Open, they're playing at Muirfield this year which has got a very storied history. They're playing at St. Andrews in a couple years, starting to partner with the RNA over there. With the U.S. Open, we're going to see them at Pebble, Riviera in a couple years, LPGA Championship. They're going to be right down the street at Congressional this year. And then a couple other notable courses, Balthastraw, and starting to team up with the PGA of America. So really, like I said, gaining a lot of positive uh, momentum, and they're going to start drawing a lot more eyeballs to the uh, product that they're putting out because they're just investing so much in the 
and the quality of the of the broadcast and everything is just going to carry right along with it. Yeah, I think sometimes. Uh, I think it's kind of a null argument, but a lot of times people try to argue that there's not a lot of money in women's games because, you know, the viewership and the talent's not as high. Uh, but when I think about golf in, in LPGA and women's golf, these girls are so good, and they do it week in and week out. They hit shots that we can't hit, and they're super talented. So I'd uh, love to see this investment finally catch up because you're right. They're some of the most talented athletes in the world are on the LPGA Tour or are working their way toward it. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. You, you bring up like the, the talent level and the, the, whether or not there is parity or not between the PGA and LPGA. I was looking at some of the numbers uh, earlier today. And through t- in 2022, the LPGA is averaging the winner is 16 strokes under par versus on the PGA Tour, they're 13 and a half under par. Like, obviously, they're different courses and everything, and conditions can vary. But, like, clearly, the while, yeah, maybe they're playing from closer tees due to, like, natural limitations. But, like, the ability to hit shots is clearly like, almost identical uh, between the tours. I think it's more fun to watch like the LPGA work their way around a course too. Cause there's certainly like girls out there that hit the ball really far. Um, but when they grow the rough up, like they just simply don't have like the strength to hit like a three iron out of there. So they really got to think their way through golf courses. So it's not surprising that the best golfers and the girls that are in the top 10 really do hit the ball just so dead straight all the time. Yeah. It's really interesting just to echo that. Like the LPGA is really all about shot shaping and hitting all the shots and, and really working your way around a golf course versus, you know, distance has become, the main talking point on the PGA tour that, you know, distance kind of drives a lot of the success for these guys. So it's, it's a really different product and it's a lot more kind of traditional golf of watching these uh, lady golfers play in these tournaments. Oh my God, their swings are so technically sound for like those just maybe starting to play the game of golf and trying to like learn how to swing properly. You got to watch some more of these LPGA tour players swing a golf club. I mean, I should probably watch some more myself because they're just incredible. Yeah, I mean, you bring up that shot shape, and it would be interesting to see like how they all would have fared in the the conditions at the players, where like we saw JT's like unbelievable round because of his shot shaping, where he managed to go bogey free and just gale force winds and pouring down rain, like that would almost like fit their game like perfectly because they have to focus on that. So it would have been kind of a a cool thing, which kind of leads into my point about like John Rob brought up uh, earlier this or last week. Uh, he was asked a question, you know, during the whole match play with a different format and how we'd love to see more events that actually allow the LPGA and PGA Tour to kind of come together and collaborate on different events, uh, which would be, I think, awesome to see. You know, we have seen it before. I was doing some research and, like, they had the Wendy's three-tour challenge, which actually had a decent run from 92 to 2015, but it was kind of weird in that it was, like, a super small field. So It was kind of corny. Yeah, they just didn't do a great job with it. It's a great concept of, like, Champions Tour, LPGA, PGA, but... It just felt kind. Of, it just felt so catered to like the sixty plus crowd. It yeah, just didn't have it, much to it. It was only it was uh, three total players uh, from each uh, group, and they were it was tour versus tour is really how how it kind of worked. Uh, which again, like you said, really cool concept, but you didn't really get to necessarily see all like the best players from the various uh, tours competing against each other, which kind of felt like feels like it's a little bit of a letdown. You know, like they could have done so much more with it. Uh, I love this idea. Doesn't doesn't tennis do mixed doubles tournaments, which it, is a, which is a good precedent for this kind of stuff? Exactly, right? I think that's a perfect point. In golf, works in such a way like obviously you can just adjust the tee boxes and yeah. all that kind of thing. Where it's you, you know, gender obviously it makes a difference in terms of oh I can hit it three hundred fifty yards versus I can hit it three hundred yards or something like that. you know it's a big difference in that capacity. But that's why they just have all those different tee boxes out there. You know, we we all play from different you know tee boxes than you know other people. You know, based off handicap, based off other things. Yeah. There's all those sort I of situations this. that it's out there. So my kind of question there is, what do you guys think might be the best format 
in that situation? You know, is it a stroke play where you're just looking at like one champion or you look at like a match play bracket style where like based off of draw, you know, you never know who you're going up against or is it kind of like an alternate shot sort of situation where it's like a PGA tour player and an LPGA tour player, you know, team together and, you know, they're working through, you know, that same kind of match play bracket or something like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely the way to go here. You team up a PGA Tour player, maybe John Rahm, who, of course, made the initial comments this week. And then he's teamed with someone like Nelly Corder and watching them play as a team and play match play style would be really fascinating. And and the, it'd be difficult to kind of figure out the dials to turn to kind of figure out where should the ladies play from? How should you kind of set it up so that it's you know even and everything but do they get a powerball it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like when we play in scrambles we get a powerball so the guys get definitely no i'm just kidding and then you know you have to make sure you have the top players in in both fields to be there to kind of draw the the crowds and everything to make it a notable event but definitely a really fascinating thing i'm sure the lpga is all about this and the pga tour is probably a little bit skeptical of exploring something like that but it'd really cool be really cool for them to kind of invest in the the lpga tour like this it doesn't seem like there's a downside really maybe some sort of like mid-season tournament to like for bragging rights and like every year they can come back and if you have like you know duos that are really good they can come back and play four or five years in a row i think um i think ben's point is good that it, it couldn't be like a it shouldn't be like a hokey thing like the match and they put like five people out there and yeah. it's just like they should actually just make it a very serious real tournament and do it every year i think there's no downside for anybody other than scheduling issues and stuff, yeah i think right? you make a great point with kind of putting it in a almost like unique spot in a sense of where it's not interfering with you know other like you know nostalgic you know, huge events on either tour and i think that's what the the wendy's three tour thing did like it was out in vegas so like weather's always you know doable kind of thing and you can kind of get it in those off season where in other places so it's definitely there's spots in the schedule you could 100 percent fit it in like where you know either players aren't playing in other tournaments because they you know, they don't live up to what they want them to be whatever it is so i think i mean it'd be a big mistake for the thing for the pga tour to not kind of pursue it and i don't think the lpga would have like any resistance to joining that here's an idea what if we combine the solheim cup and the Ryder cup into one event oh Wait. That's tough because those guys are just such heavy hitters. But I'd like the idea of like two people representing their country rather than, you know, and even in the Olympics. Like, honestly, I think the Olympics might have been a little boring watching the stroke play. So, can we make it a two person event, man and woman? That would be really cool, too. I mean, it has to be man versus woman, man, woman pairs. And then in the end, maybe they do um, one on one, man versus man, woman versus woman, and alternate the tee times. I mean, it seemed like that'd be a cool event. We could call it the BPO Club. I think they could figure out a way something here. Like, you know, if it's a multi-day event, I think if day one you do alternate shot, you could just, you could designate like which tees are meant for the men and which tees are meant for the women. So like men tee off on the odd holes and women tee off on the even holes and you get a good mix of par threes and par fives and fours in there. Um, But then, yeah, like all, um, you know, then the next day you just do uh, the guys play each other and the girls play each other and they're all forced, you know, four ball kind of playing the same hole. Like that would be really fun. I, I know we want to refocus this back to the women's game. We're, t- we're going to talk about some young players coming up, but like how much do the men and the women golfers really interface on the tour? I mean, do they, do they, do we, do they like interact? Are they, fr- I'm sure a lot of them are friends and social media and stuff, but like, would they really ever cross paths tour wise or probably like just not too much on the yeah. tour, but I imagine like, you Events, know, there's so many, there's so many, stuff. There, yeah, there's obviously the sponsors, but you know, like how many of the PGA tour players are living, you know, either or they're in Arizona, Florida, they're in Florida, yeah. they're in Vegas. And I think it's the same sort of thing. Like I know that like Daniel Kang and Colin Morikawa and Maverick Neely, they're all Vegas yeah. um, individuals. And like I said, I'm sure there's a bunch of them that are down in Florida, Arizona, those places where basically you can always play golf year round. I, I, I think mean, they're, they probably do a lot of like 
intermingling there. Yeah. I mean, I think some of myself doesn't have a ton of experience, you know, watching the women's tour and getting more into it now. But I think like the more that, I don't know, the more that those can, they can like cross, cross pollinate and like prop each other up, the better. Cross pollinate. Yeah. We saw, yeah, it was really interesting. The PNC well, championship, which is a course, a pro playing with a family member. Mm-hmm. Is that technically the rules? But we saw Nellie Corda compete there this year. I believe that was probably the first time that a professional female golfer had played. Yep. And interestingly enough, I think Colin brought this up last week, but like Nellie Corda was starstruck meeting Tiger Woods. So here we have like the best female golfer, arguably in the world, and and definitely a a powerhouse over the last couple of years. Had never met Tiger Woods before. So I, it's interesting that you know, like like you said, Ken, they don't really intermingle a ton because they're always in different places playing in tournaments. I feel like another connection might be their coaches because a lot of the women have the same coaches as the men. You think of like Claude Harmon. I think he coaches people on both the PGA and LPGA tours. So that might be another connection as well. Maybe they don't intermingle much because like the average, uh, the average age of someone in the top ten in the men's like thirty five, and in the women's game it's like twenty four. Right? Not anymore, man. No, the women's. I mean, the women's game is extremely young right now. Colin, you got some good talking points right now, and I think that that's why it's like this budding success is because these companies are coming in knowing they can invest in a in a league, in a sport that is just has years and years to come of these historic players. Yeah, so I just wanted to highlight some of the young talent that is currently at the top of the LPGA Tour right now. I mean, we have Nelly Korda out there who started years at number one, um, quickly overtaken by Jin Young Ko, who has played some record-setting golf this year with just her greens and reg stats are just unbelievable. Uh, you got Lydia Ko up there lurking at number three. She's a former no- world number one, as well as a red-hot Danielle Kang that's already won a few events early this year. So of those four golfers there that I just mentioned, the average age is less than 26 years old. Then you add in the likes of people like Leona, Leona McGuire, who's made a meteoric rise in the rankings over the last year. You got Lexi Thompson, who feels like she's been on the tour forever. She's only 27 years old. And Brooke Henderson, who's also been around for a good amount of time, she's only 24 years old. So you think about these best, player, best players in the LPGA Tour, and hardly any of them are pushing 30. So I think the LPGA Tour is in really good hands. And, I mean, I think we're going to see all these girls as well as others who rise from college. I mean, we're going to get into a little bit here with the women's amateur coming up. But it's just the parity at the top is just unbelievable right now. And I think it's going to make for a fun uh, tour to watch moving forward. Yeah, and and we definitely saw it even this past week. So the JTBC Classic LPGA Tour event that we just had, Ataya Titical, 19 years old, wins and she was labeled as the kind of like the next up-and-coming golfer and and one of the you know future stars to watch and she gets her first victory at the age of 19 i think she was the youngest female to win a tournament in probably six seven years so really fascinating just kind of echoes your point that the sport is just so young with so much raw talent ready to make a move and a pretty good finish last week too because kurtz madsen kind of she crumbled a little bit toward the end there's like par 4 16th is drivable she hits the green two putts for birdie has a par five seventeenth that she really doesn't take advantage of and then ends up bogey in the 18th to get into the playoffs. So a lot of fun things to come on in women's golf. And then to talk about another event that's coming this week to talk about the amateur game. You can't talk about it unless you talk about the premier women's amateur event golf event in the world. And that's the Augusta national women's amateur. The Augusta national women's amateur was announced in April, 2018 by Augusta national chairman, Fred Riley during his press conference for the masters. This is a really exciting event for all the elite amateurs in the world as they get to play what some might argue and most might argue is the best course in the world. So rounds one and two, they play at the Champions Retreat Golf Club, which is 30 minutes south of Augusta. And then in round three, they get to play Augusta. 
And last year we saw Jennifer Cup show, or I guess not last year, but 20, 2019, the last time they played this thing, we saw Jennifer Cup show shoot a 67 in the final round at Augusta, which is just like, I don't know. I, I just wouldn't be, I'd be able to tell your friends you shot a 67 at Augusta in any kind of tournament is amazing. Uh, and she's since had a very successful career, a great uh, first couple years on the LPGA Tour, a Solheim Cup teammate in 2021. Uh, she edges out notable names like Maria Fossi and Yuka Sasso, who we have coming up here shortly, is one of our favorite golfers. All these girls are having such amazing careers. So this is, even though this this tournament and format is really in its infancy, it's only been around for like four years, is really showing to kind of produce the best amateurs, the best amateur winners in the field is always just so stacked. What do you guys think about the amateur girls getting about being able to play Augusta National? I think it's awesome. I mean... Basically, anyone to be able to play Augusta is such a limited thing, and then making an event that's specifically targeted for like, these amateur women that are you know trying to make it big on the tour, I think it's just a great way to just encourage the growth of that game, which obviously we haven't seen, and particularly we haven't seen from Augusta until recently. So I think it's a great step in the right direction here. It is. It's sad how long it took, right? And it, it's just so amazing. I mean, these girls, like when you watch, you'll be able to see some coverage, especially when they're at Augusta, and they can just absolutely tear this place up. And you think about some players like Maria Fossi, she hits it like 300, and not the distance is always key, but man, she can tear that course up. You know, when Jennifer Cupcho beat her, she played out of her mind, uh, played amazing. So being able, and then also being able to see all these names come up, like I think the amateur golf probably doesn't get as much coverage as it should, whether it's in the men's or the women's game. Uh, you don't see it on TV much. So being able to watch this, and then five years down the road, be like, oh, man, I remember her playing at Augusta and Augusta National Women's Amateur. Yeah, and it's really interesting, too. I think this is more so with the women's game, but, you know, you just named the three golfers. They're so relevant right now. I think we got a couple major winners there playing at this amateur tournament. I don't think the men's game is quite the same. I think it takes much longer for these guys to kind of figure out their game and the mental aspect. That's what's so fascinating about this Augusta event is, you know, these these women are going to be relevant now and soon i think there's kind of like this formula to women's golf that they've kind of figured out and if you do it well you can play well uh but then i think yeah with the guys that's like there's everyone's trying to break the code and trying to come up with their own way to play and it sometimes it leads to success and sometimes it doesn't but you really just aren't seeing like scotty scheffler such a prime example of being like 25 or 26 years old kind of just getting his tour win and all of a sudden the floodgates open but it took him forever to get there. And you see these girls, uh, like some of the golfers we'll talk about in a second when we talk about our favorite female golfers, like how they're in their late teens, early 20s, and they're already at double-digit wins around the world professionally. You just don't see it in the men's game. Nice. All right, we'll be back in a second to talk about our favorite golfers. And we're back to close out the podcast. We're going to get everyone's take on who their favorite golfer in the female game is. And to avoid another talking to myself awkward moment to close out a segment, I'm going to go first here. I'm going to take Lydia Ko. I think that if it wasn't for Rory, and like I love Rory, if it wasn't for him, she'd be my favorite golfer regardless. But Rory takes the cake there. Uh, so if you don't know, Lydia Ko uh, is a golfer that was born in Seoul, South Korea. She moved to New Zealand when she's 12. So she's classically referred as to the, the best Kiwi on tour. She's won 23 professional events in two majors, and she's only 24 years old. So a little bit more about Lydia. So she was a junior phenom. She reached the number one world status at only 17 years old, which for comparison, 
the youngest person to do that before her in the men's or women's game was Tiger, and he was 21. And then for the women, the youngest was 22. So she's four to five years younger than anyone that's ever reached number one status. She was, in opinion, uh, in my opinion, something the game's never seen before. She hit the ball like a machine, a magician around the greens, and then really had that fire in her stomach and could make putts from anywhere. She seemed like uh, immortal, and she couldn't break down, and uh, that was all on the surface because uh, Lydia kind of fell apart. She had a big mental mental collapse. Uh, she fell to number 55 in the world in 2020, which doesn't seem that far, but uh, in a women's game that's maybe not as deep as the men's game, that might be the equivalent of falling like you know well outside of the top 100 in the men's game. She only had eight top 10s in a two-year stretch when she was winning you know, four to five tournaments a year, so she really went through a lull. I've been playing golf for a long time, and I truly believe that... Uh, the mental side of the game is probably the most important side of the game. That's always classically said that the six inches between your ears is the most important real estate on a golf course and uh, maybe seven inches for some of our big headed fellas in the room. But uh, yeah, so Lydia started working with fame instructor and someone I really, really enjoy watching all of his content is Sean Foley. He really helped her kind of approach the game differently, take it more of a, you know, take a different mental approach. Uh, in, in the years following her slump, uh, she's now gained number three in the world. She's picked up hobbies like yoga, meditation. She's arguably one of the fittest players on tour. She's number three in the world now. She's won multiple times since that. Um, I really am looking forward to what Lydia can bring to the table in the next few years. And being only 24 and having won 23 professional events worldwide, she could, you know, we could be in the midst of uh, the greatest golfer to ever play the game easily. Uh, so, I my personal favorite, you know, again, I'm I'm early into the uh, following the LPGA Tour game, but you know, I'm I feel find, find myself drawn to Danielle Kang. She's just kind of very down to earth individual, which is kind of really what makes her really relatable. And I like the golfers that feel like they aren't, you know, just they don't think they're, like they're better than you. Like she's someone that <laughs> wants to uh, you know, just enjoy life. Uh, as well as she's also, you know, turning 30 this year too. So I've, you know, kind of can channel myself into, oh, I, I still have a chance. I can go out there and, you know, maybe compete one day. But, you know, she's number seven in the world, <laughs> an American, which is also huge because, you know, got a root for the home homeland here. And then also a major champion. So, you know, it's it's it's, it's pretty cool. I, I don't know. That's my personal thing. And Danielle's done some really cool interviews too. I mean, like she just really does seem down to earth. She's done some stuff with foreplay. She's done like all of her Adidas commercials. Like you can tell that she is just uh, somebody you can get along with really well. She doesn't hold herself to a higher standard. And uh, yeah, she's another Disney adult just like me. So like I'm really, really all about that. I think the one thing I like about Danielle too is she's like, she is like the perfect example of a magician. Like she has tournaments where she really just, she's not feeling her swing. She's out of sync and she gets up and down from everywhere. Like a, like a Disney magician. She probably also likes Harry Potter too, if I was to guess. Maybe they're wizardy. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the easy answer here for me would be Nellie Corda. I talked about her last week as my top pick for golfer under 25, but I'll, t I'll pivot a little bit, but just an item of note, she's still kind of nursing an injury. I believe she had a blood clot a little bit, so we don't really know the extent of that, but definitely, you know, the number two golfer in the world, we def, we want to see her back and, and competing. So she's going to miss the first major this year, which kind of sucks, but you know, wishing her all the best to get back better than ever. So I'm I'm gonna go with Patty Tavitanikit here, a a young Thai golfer, UCL UCLA Bruin <laughs> alum, 21 years old, kind of took the tour by storm a little bit last year. So we have the Chevron Major, which was formerly known as the A and A Inspiration, the first major of of the season, and she won that last year to kind of really kick off her her rookie year. She ended the year with ten, ten top tens, three of them were major championships. So she shows up for majors. 
Really exciting to watch. She's one of the longer hitters on tour, but also leads the tour in putting, which is pretty incredible to have a long game, but also have that short game too to, to kind of back it up. So she's been struggling a little bit early this season with consistency kind of in between there, but I'd like to see her get back and, and maybe even defend her title. So definitely one of the young stars of the LPGA tour that I'm, I'm tuning in frequently to watch her play. Which major did she win? U.S. Open? Or she yeah. might have won the ANA. The ANA, yeah. 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 The, the when she, tournament when, formerly known as the ANA. Right, the Chevron, Chevron this week. Yeah, so um, I think when I watched her win that, I remember, man, she certainly had that like glassed over look in her eyes like a, like an absolute machine. She was not breaking. Nobody was going to beat her. Yeah, she went wire to wire there, here last year. And ironically enough, Lydia Ko shot a final round 62 that nearly caught her, but she held on to win it. So pretty cool stuff. She ended up winning the uh, 2021 Rolex Annika major award winner, which is the, of all the players that won a major that year who consistently played the best in all the majors. So rising star, keep an eye out for her. I think this like the overall theme here is really funny because we did a segment a couple weeks ago about who our best golfer under 25 is. And, and I feel like all of us were like, this person. Then we look and it's like, oh shit, he's 26. It's like, we haven't mentioned a single person over like fucking 23 right now. What are you talking about? Danielle Kang? She turned 30 this year. She is, yeah. She's been around for a One bit. of us. Happy birthday, Danielle. <laughs> Hope, you October. A, Hope you have a great birthday, Danielle. <laughs> nice. Okay, what about Colin? Who's Who you got here? Now, listen, I just started really seriously watching women's golf last year, and I watched the 2021 U.S. Women's Open Championship, and I saw Yuka Sasso go out there and put on a freaking clinic. She did win in a playoff, so it was pretty tight, but when you're, ta- I'm talking about these smooth swings that are out there on the LPGA Tour. Hers, she learned from the best. She modeled her swing after Rory McIlroy after watching YouTube videos. Uh, if you just go out there and Google like Rory McIlroy, Yuka Sasso, and watch the video of their swing side by side, they look exactly the same. I mean, she can absolutely bomb it, even the, with her smaller frame, just based on that swing that she's that she's put together. And she is just so fun to watch. So she's also got this like I think it was the final round of the U.S. Open Women's Open last year. You know, I like to talk about fashion on this show. She's wearing an all yellow like top bottom. It was the bumblebee. Yeah, awesome look. So yeah, I'm gonna go with Yuka Sasso. And a uh, fun background fact about her: so she was the first kind of exception to the Popov rule. So normally on the LPGA Tour, when you win a major, you get an automatic five-year tour exemption. Before last year, in order to qualify for that five-year exemption, you had to be a previously an LPGA Tour member, or else it shrank down to two years. Um, so, But after Sofia Popov won the AIG Women's Open uh, as a non-LPGA Tour member in August 2020, they decided to kind of get rid of that uh, shrinking down to two-year exemption. So after Yuka won last year as a non-LPGA Tour member, she was actually the first one to have an option whether she wanted to kind of come on to the LPGA Tour and accept that five-year exemption, and she did. So we're going to see be seeing a lot more of her this year and for years to come, and I'm really excited about it. I think it's so hard for us to, to find the magnitude of, of people like Titicul or Tavitaniket or Sasso and how huge they are in their home countries. And being 20, 21 years old, winning a major, like they're just, they're just, I mean, that's talk about growing the game. Like they are absolutely inspiring the youngest generation of women and girls to become golfers. And I love it. Yeah, that's what's so exciting about some of these major tournaments. And and with the men's game, we saw it with Hideki Matsuyama last year. Like, you know, he's inspiring the next generation of Japanese golfers. What's the number one amateur in the world Japanese now? The kid, uh, I can't remember his last name he put yeah, a few I, weeks I, ago. I can't remember. He's an absolute name, animal. Yeah. And it's, it's all due to Hideki. They just he just come the kid. the kid. And we see it a lot with the women's game, too. It's just, you know, really cool to see someone come along and, and kind of pull the next generation up. Nice. Tyler, 
Yeah, so I think I'm kind of like a few of us here that I'm new to the LPGA game. Yep, new guy here. Um, new guy. So new guy segment. Honest, honestly, immediately what popped in my head was Michelle Wee, and I I, I looked it up. She's 32. Like yeah. I, I expected her to be like 45 so, at this and point. And a proud mother. Yeah, proud mother. And but yeah, she's 32 years old. I mean, that's where my mind goes. But then I was thinking about it a little bit more. I don't know a lot of the new faces on the LPGA tour. But when I was thinking about it, it's like, what female golfer really stands out to me? And it's Troy Mullins. Um, she's not on the tour, but she hits absolute nukes in these long drive competitions. You see that. You might flick it on ESPN2 on a lazy lazy Saturday afternoon, and you see the world long drives out there, and you just see her hitting bombs. I'd love to see if she could get on the tour to compete with some of these uh, younger stars that are up and coming just to see if the distance that she gets could play on the tour, or is it – really kind of exactly what we're seeing with some of these young stars that are just going to take over the game. But when I think about it as a, a female golfer, she really stands out to me just with the sheer strength that she shows when she plays. Yeah, and a young black female golfer too, which is an area that needs a ton of investment and more attention because um, you just don't see it as, as little as you see it on the PGA Tour. You see it even less on the LPGA Tour. So she is she is promoting and growing the game in places that we absolutely need to. Yeah, and what's crazy about her, too, is like she didn't play when she was younger. She was a track star in college yeah, at Cornell. You can tell. She's a beast. Yeah, she comes out of college. She's just like, I need something to do. She picks up a driver and just can hit bombs. One of her friends said, hey, you should go do a long drive contest. She comes in second place just out of nowhere. So I, I just think that's an awesome story for her, and she's really exciting to watch out. Right now, she's my favorite, but I'd, I'd love to start following along a little bit more, understand some more about the game, learn these new faces, and really follow along. Well, I think you bring up a good point there, and I wonder, I think in my mind, I wonder how long it's going to take until we see that like natural progression of the women's game where they just start chasing distance. I think it's kind of inevitable because in, in most part, like distance and speed pretty much in every sport dominates, and it's starting to get that way in golf, but... Yeah, I mean, I think golf is still slightly protected because it still requires such like good touch and everything like that. But in the men's game, you're already starting to see it. In the women's game, I mean, I know that uh, that Nelly Corda, even with a pretty small frame, still hits the ball like 20 yards. So it'd be interesting to see how long it takes for people like Troy uh, to kind of get their short game cleaned up in their iron play, and all of a sudden they're competing on the LPGA. Yeah, and one of the just to go back, Michelle Wee. I mean, that she was a absolute superstar in the game right around the time that you know we were in high school or I was in high school you all were in middle school whatever diapers <laughs> but she was playing she was playing in men's tournaments just as a you know female golfer and that was just fascinating to see you know especially at that time like her trying to compete and trying to go out there and go toe to toe with the men so really fascinating and, and someone that definitely sticks out in my mind of, of my childhood. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Michelle Wee, and I'm really not sure if she's done. Like, I think like last year, and, and COVID's made it a little odd, I'm sure, and she's obviously a mother to a newborn, I think probably a three or four-year-old now, um, but I'm not sure she's really given up on golf. She played a few tournaments last year, you know, was making cuts. All of a sudden, she'd make like three or four boardies in a row, and you really thought like maybe she's back. Um, but I'd love to see a renaissance for Michelle Wee, and I think with all of her experience, she could definitely still do really well. Yeah, just to end on this, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a ton to say, but just hearing all what you guys have been saying, I've been learning a lot, and I've actually, this is my this is the first year I've been actually watching um, some LG, LPGA tour events, um, and I really it's it's the quality of golf is really really high. So um, I'm definitely I started following a lot of the golfers on Instagram, definitely behind the cordas, and I'm looking forward to getting to know more about the game. So. So if any LPGA Tour players want to become Ken's favorite, just post a picture of it. Yeah, some natural open for world. If there's like a, it's like a female Paul Casey out there. 
Who's the female Victor Hovland's or Victor? No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm I'm really I'm Paul Casey's like Charlie Hull. You be Charlie Hull. I'm excited to watch more though. I think I'll I'll uh, I'll 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 tune back in in like four or five weeks and tell you my favorite. Well, I think in the LPG has a really good opportunity here too because like I think whenever you pick your favorite golfer, like obviously you can enjoy their golf, but you really want to like connect with them personally too. So like I need the LPGA to really start investing in their media strategy and getting these women out there because not only are they interesting, they have great golf games and they're just a lot of fun to get to know. So I just more of that and more to come. All right, that wraps it up for us today. Thanks, everyone, for being here. We had a great episode. Lots of insight into the ladies' game and then who our favorite lady golfers are. Hey, if you haven't yet, head on over to Instagram. Follow us at BigPlayersOnlyPod. Lots more stuff to come as the LPGA and PGA seasons really start to heat up. Thanks again for being here. Talk to you soon.